My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Most Canadians outside of the prairies tend to think of the oil and gas industry as just that, an industry, a giant, a monolith. And now especially, as we realize how serious the climate crisis is, there is a tendency to see the decline of the oil and gas industry as a universally good thing. I mean, it's certainly good for the health of the planet in general, but it's not necessarily good for everyone's health, at least not unless there's something to replace it with. This year alone in Alberta, tens of thousands of jobs in oil and gas have been lost. And each one of those is a person who needed that job to keep themselves and their family healthy and fed. And the decline in this kind of work isn't slowing down. If anything, the pandemic has steepened it. So how can Canada and Alberta reconcile the need to take rapid action on climate change with the real cost that change has to workers and their families as those jobs disappear. The easy answer here is to transition those workers into the renewable energy industry. But that's a lot easier said than done, especially when you're talking about workers who in some cases have spent decades doing one job and now need to learn another. Not easy, maybe, but not impossible. Some organizations are doing it, some companies are helping onboard former oil and gas workers, and some people who have spent their entire careers in the oil patch are taking the future into their own hands. So what's next for them and for the industry that once drove an entire province? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Part three of our special five-part series with the Narwhal brings us to Sharon Riley. She is the Alberta investigative reporter for the Narwhal. She's a lifelong Albertan, and she reports from the oil patch. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing really well, and I'm excited to get a glimpse uh, of what a really quickly changing industry uh, looks like on the ground. And why don't you just start maybe um, so we have someone to frame this around with telling me uh, a little bit about Dustin Taylor. Who is he and what did he do? Sure. So Dustin is one of the people I came across when I started looking into the energy transition in Alberta and what that really looks like on the ground for workers who are making the leap on their own. So Dustin was born in Nova Scotia. His his dad had worked in oil on an offshore oil rig uh, out there. He moved to Alberta when he was a kid, and he kind of has a what you would consider a fairly typical story for a lot of oil workers in this province. Um, but yeah, I left, left school um, before I graduated and pretty much started working right off the hop. And like most people in Alberta, I ended up in the energy industry working in oil and gas, um, making decent money. I mean, it was pretty easy to find a decent job. 
He told me that at his first job, he made $60,000 a year. So I don't know about you, but when I was 16, I was not making that kind of money. (laughs) Um, But that's a pretty typical story in Alberta. When the industry is booming, the oil and gas industry is booming, there's money to be made. And a lot of young people, young men in particular in this province, haven't always seen a reason to, you know, stick around pursuing education when you could support your family and your lifestyle so immediately right out the gate. And what uh, happened to him after he'd been working there for a while? And and from your piece and your reporting, I gather it's uh, not super uncommon these days. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons why an individual worker might decide that they want to shift out of the oil and gas industry. Um, There are cultural reasons, you know, a lot of oil and gas work involves working in a camp, means being out of town, away from home for at least, you know, 10 days, if not a couple of weeks at a time, um, which if you're, if you're having, if you have a family means you're away from your family for all that time. It's also what Dustin described as a bit of a moral conundrum. Um, yeah, I definitely remember watching the BP oil spill happen. Um, it was plastered all over the news for days and I kind of watched this giant catastrophe just unfold in front of our eyes for days on end, never really knowing what was going to happen. It was kind of a heartbreaking moment. He just suddenly something clicked in his mind where he decided that no longer could he work in an industry that he thought was detrimental to the planet and to future generations. And he said that had a lot to do with him having kids and wondering about the world they're going to live in. And he decided to make a shift. It was a gamble for him. Where did he go? Well, he part of what made him decide to make the shift as well is that he lost a job. So he lost his job. So he went back to school, uh, retrained to be a solar installer in Alberta. Um, and I think his story is a successful one. He's now uh, gainfully employed as a solar installer and he's completely left his oil and gas lifestyle. He can be home every night. But that's not the reality for every worker who who may want to make a transition or, or have to because the job that they've had for many decades has disappeared. Um, he had to do this on his own. You know, he didn't have a lot of government support. There's no oil and gas transition worker program in Alberta or in Canada for that matter. Um, so it's a, it's a financial gamble. It it's, uh, involves a huge lifestyle shift and that's something he took on on his own. Before we talk about, you know, how the transition is moving along and what's to come, can you give me a sense of just how prevalent uh, the oil and gas industry is in Alberta? Because for, for someone like me who spends most of his life in Ontario, it can feel like everyone in Alberta works in oil and gas. <laughs> it can feel like that in Alberta as well. Um, there's There are different stats out there as to how many people are directly employed in the oil industry. CAP, which is the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, it's an industry group. They said in 2017, so it's a couple years old now, there were hundreds of thousands of jobs from oil in Alberta. Uh, I think they said around 340,000. Now, obviously, that number has changed a bit since the pandemic hit everyone. Um, but it does go to show that that's, that's a large number of jobs. And those are jobs directly related to oil. So that doesn't include all of the hotels and hotel workers, restaurant workers, people who support the industry um, and the people who are directly employed in it. Um, Another way of looking at it is um, looking at Statistics Canada figures. Statistics Canada doesn't directly break down oil workers. It lumps them all in sort of what you might call extractive industries. So that includes 
mining of all types, oil and gas, forestry, fishing. And if you look at those numbers, one in every 16 workers in Alberta is employed in those extractive industries. So if you're in a room of 16 people, one person is employed in that extractive industry, that's, that's quite a few. Right. And where are we right now, I guess, as we're talking uh, in the transition towards renewable energy in in Canada and around the world, just in terms of of how much longer that one in 16 figure is going to be viable for Alberta? I think that's a million dollar question. We, we hear a lot about the idea right. of an energy transition. We, uh, we hear it from politicians and environmental groups. We've heard it from Justin Trudeau. We heard it from Joe Biden at the presidential debate that the U.S. needs to transition away from oil. Even Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has made reference to the idea that an energy transition is going to happen at some point here. And it's just been pretty widely reported and repeated that if we're going to meet Canada's climate targets, many workers in fossil fuels will need to look for new jobs. Where does the push towards uh, transferring Alberta to renewable energy come from? I think a lot of times you hear the claim that it's political, uh, but... At a certain point, there's going to be no getting around the economic reality. At least that's my understanding of it. Yeah, I think there's a huge economic case to be made for embracing renewable energy in Alberta. Um, I think it was last year or earlier this year, actually. I think it was earlier this year that Jason Kenney said that um, it's a pretty obvious fact that there will be an energy transition in Alberta. Uh, He said, and I'm quoting here, no reasonable person can deny that in the decades to come, we will see a gradual shift from hydrocarbon-based energy to other forms of energy. And I think most people would agree that that's not an ideological position for Jason Kenney. He's not adamant that we need to switch to renewable energy for um, moral reasons, I don't think. He's talking about the economics and the global demand for oil uh, that will be declining as other countries make the shift. So what what has to be done or what can be done to help people like Dustin, who one way or another at some point during this transition are going to have to make the jump? Because this is what uh, maybe not every but a vast majority of oil and gas workers will be staring down at some point, right? Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important questions that the energy transition is grappling with. Because Transitioning into a new line of work is not as simple as it might sound, Uh, especially if you're older or you live in an area where those new jobs and the new economy just aren't available. Um, What if what if the transition to a new job involves a pay cut or what if those new jobs aren't unionized? I think one of the things that I realized through my reporting is that workers aren't just pegs that you can move to a different hole. You know, you can't just rearrange the workforce as as you would like to when you go through an energy transition. So what becomes pretty clear is that government support is is pretty important in an energy transition. We've seen this in another program in Alberta um, when it comes to coal workers. So Alberta and Canada have committed to ending coal-fired electricity in the province and the country by 2030. And that means that a lot of people who worked in coal mines that were the coal was being used to generate electricity are just out of a job. And those are often small towns. They live where the coal is. It's not uh, necessarily a major urban hub. So those small towns would have been created specifically for the purposes of coal mining. And when the government and the industry realized this was going to be no longer sustainable, the government stepped in and created a program 
It's called the Coal Workforce Transition Program. And that was designed to help people who were employed in an extractive industry, in this case coal, in, and to help them transition into a new job. So that provided tuition support if they wanted to go back to school. It provided them with help if they needed to relocate, financial help. It provided career counseling. It helped older workers get through the last couple of years of what would have been their careers until they could retire. Because for some people, just retraining might not be an option. If you've worked in a coal mine for the last 40 years, it's not that likely that you just want to jump on board and switch to a new economy, that that new job just might not be there for you. So that kind of government support, I've heard from so many people, is is what people would like to see um, for oil and gas workers as well. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. What about on the ground? When you talk to people who uh, work in the oil and gas industry now, and, and I'd imagine, honestly, some of them probably come from uh, a family who's made a lot of money in that industry, and it's the family business. Um, what do they feel about the coming transition and their prospects in it? Are they ready for it? Are they embracing it if they get a little bit of help? Or is there, uh, I think, again, stereotypically speaking, as somebody uh, from Ontario, uh, it feels like there's a political resistance there. Yeah, and I think one of the things that happens so often with Alberta energy workers is that there's, there's sort of an archetype that we see uh, yeah. just portrayed in the media and everywhere that there's one kind of Alberta energy worker. They're super conservative. They don't want an energy transition. They want to keep making tons of money. Um, and they're, it, it's, just, it's not accurate. I mean, there are so, there's so much variety within, an El, within Alberta's energy workers. Of course, there are some people who are, are willing to um, fight tooth and nail to the end to continue with the fossil fuel economy. Um, but there are other people who are eager to see a transition. We see groups like Iron and Earth, which is um, a group of former oil sands, former and current oil sands workers who are advocating for government support and transitioning, transitioning to renewable energy jobs. So there's just a lot of variety when it comes to people who work in fossil fuels. And I think too often um, people are painted with a broad brush and we don't see all the complexities within their perspectives. I mean, the coverage of the story and and not your work, but uh, a lot of the stuff that we see kind of leans into that, right? It's either you're on team oil and gas or you're you're on team renewable energy. And it's it's pitched that way. So it's hard to see um, it's hard to see the individuals whose livelihoods are are caught between the two. It is. And I think that's what I was hoping to do with my reporting is show why some people who may in fact be in favor of an energy transition, why they might still have concerns about what that might look like for them and for their families and their communities. Um, I worked on a story two years ago about coal miners, as I mentioned earlier. And I think the more you hear about their concerns and their fears, the more you start to empathize that with them and why they might want to go a little slower within for an energy transition. When when you think about your own job just 
drying up or being told that your job is no longer ethical and that you need to start something totally new. While they might be excited about that idea in, a, in the big picture, it's certainly a, a big question that looms over the whole idea of an energy transition of how it will deal with every individual who's going to have to make some pretty big sacrifices to move along with that energy transition. Well, you've touched on it a couple times already, specifically uh, relating to coal. And, you know, you mentioned that even uh, Jason Kenney sort of sees this is in the cards at some point. So what is uh, the government doing right now to plan for that five to 10 years, uh, if it even takes that long down the road to support these workers? It's a it's a much bigger scale, I think, than phasing out coal, right? It is. Yeah. And I, I mean, with the pandemic, it, a lot of things have been <laughs> thrown to the wind when it comes to plans yeah. <laughs> for the future. So we don't know how the government is planning to move out of the pandemic and and move to support workers um, who might have lost their jobs in oil and gas. Also, because of the huge change in the global economy and global circumstances, a lot of oil and gas workers have lost their jobs, not because of a push for an energy transition, but because of a um, huge decline in oil prices and, and just a lot of economic factors that no one foresaw. So it's possible that we might see more programs in Alberta in the future to support those workers. But when it comes to transitioning to renewables, we've seen this current government move away from programs that supported or incentivized renewable energy in the program in the province. Um, for example, the previous government had put in place rebates for consumers who wanted to install solar panels on their homes or businesses. Um, that was funded by the carbon tax, and those have been completely scrapped by the UCP government. And that's something that I heard from a lot of solar workers, the very workers who used to be in oil and gas, as th th those were very important. Th they were helping to create a bridge to a self-sustaining industry. I think any fledgling industry, when it gets off the ground, can definitely use some support as people get used to the idea of having solar instead of having, you know, electricity just arrive at your house by the, the magic of power lines. Um, and getting rid of that program not only reduced de demand for solar energy, but it also reduced the viability of jobs in that industry. Um, you need to demand to be able to have a workforce. Yeah. Um, what about uh, individuals in the absence of official programs from the government? Um, who's out there trying to build a future in renewables so that Alberta can hopefully uh, own that the way they've owned oil and gas? Yeah, so I, we do see the groups like I mentioned, Iron and Earth, the Coalition of Oil Sands Workers pushing for government support um, when it comes to bridging to renewables. But as I found when I was reporting this piece on solar workers, it, it's really come down to individuals having to make a choice for themselves and then go it alone. They're not getting a lot of support right now when it comes to making the transition from a fossil fuel job to a renewable energy job in Alberta. It just doesn't, it doesn't exist. So if you want to make a transition and you are able to pay to go back to school, if that's what it involves, or if you can afford the pay cut, if that's what it involves for you, then you're able to make a go of it. But there aren't a lot of other incentives being put in place by the government right now. 
Alberta obviously has a, a huge advantage when it comes to oil and gas by virtue of what they're sitting on. How does that translate to renewable energy? Are there any intrinsic advantages uh, for that industry in the province, or are they looking at building everything from scratch and kind of time is ticking? Yeah, I think one thing that comes up a lot when people are talking about renewables in Alberta is that we're rich when it comes to renewables in this province. Alberta is a very sunny place and parts of the province, like the southern parts of the province, are very windy. So those are resources that are just waiting to be harnessed in a lot of ways. Whether or not we do that is just a really a matter of will, not a matter of availability. How much relies on what happens post-pandemic uh, to the jobs that have been lost already and, and the companies that are kind of on, uh, on the tipping point uh, and, and what's done to transition them? Because it, it seems like at least if, if, it's, uh, if it's similar to some of the uh, conversations we've had here around businesses that have shut down during the pandemic, you're going to have you know, a limited amount of time to make sure those things aren't gone forever and ease them into something else. Yeah. I mean, one of the points that came up in my reporting, this was pre-pandemic, was that the idea that jobs are lost in the fossil fuel sector should should not come as a surprise. The, the whole premise of a mine is that you mine the resource and then it's gone and those jobs won't last forever. But we're in a position or we have been in a position in Alberta where resource jobs were somewhat reliable, even though there's a you know, bumps along the way with any boom and bust economy. But those jobs have been somewhat reliable for a while now. And I think what the pandemic is doing is perhaps providing the shock that we thought would come with having to meet our climate targets and we thought would come with a drastically changing global demand for oil and maybe moved that up a little bit and made it more dramatic than than we could have imagined. And it it just remains to be seen how the government and industry responds to and harnesses what might be a opportunity to make a big jump into something different. Or if we, as we've done in the past in this province, double down on what we used to do, what has been working before, and kind of refuse to go along with the tides of change. Before I let you go, I thought I'd ask, um, you met with a ton of people who work in oil and gas, and you might have had some preconceived notions, not maybe about them, but about, but about what they might say and their point of view. What, uh, what, if any, views have you changed as a result of your reporting? Hmm. I mean, that's a good question. I grew up in Alberta, so I'm not shocked <laughs> when I meet an oil and gas worker to hear the variety of, of viewpoints that they have. Um, my dad worked in the oil sands when I was a teenager, so I'm, I'm used to the idea of a lifestyle where your parent goes off for a couple of weeks and you don't see them and then they come back and they're making quite a bit of money in that. But I think what's changed for me is is the idea that so many Alberta workers are completely unwilling to embrace any change. What, what was really interesting about meeting the, the workers who have transitioned into the solar economy was just to see how, how young and hopeful they all are. They definitely went and made the big bucks in the oil and gas industry when they were teenagers and in their early 20s, but it didn't take them very long to become disheartened with the industry. And they really feel that this is the way forward. They've worked in the, in the oil and gas industry and, and they're placing all of their bets 
personally on, on renewables. And I thought that was interesting to see that that's happening in Alberta. I think it's no secret to anybody who listens to this podcast that I hope that they're right. Thank you so much for <laughs> talking to us today, Sharon. Thanks so much for inviting me on to the show. Sharon Riley, Alberta investigative reporter for The Narwhal. That was The Big Story. You can find more of us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find more of Sharon and her colleagues at thenarwhal.ca. We're also in your podcast player, anyone you choose, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. We're happy to take your love and your hate on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. And for detailed feedback, please write us an email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.